0: bring other women into the profession and encourage that and let women know like there's a place for you in trail building for sure you know like it is a creative dynamic career you know it's a very satisfying way to make a living
1: Episode 110 features Dawn Packard. Dawn is an absolute legend in the world of trail building. As you will learn here, she has more than three decades of experience in so many diverse and challenging situations. Dawn is the founder and owner of Blue Sky Trails, LLC, and is the current president of the Professional Trail Builders Association. I do have to apologize, as there is a slight bit of static that came through during this recording. I am not sure it caused it, and I did my best to minimize it. Please don't let this detract from the conversation you are about to hear, because it is truly incredible. I'd like to take a moment to thank all of the listeners and guests who have taken the time to share the Trail Effect episodes on their social media accounts, such as Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, along with taking Trail Effect in their posts. This has helped more listeners find the Trail Effect podcast. Please keep up all of the sharing, commenting, and taking of Trail Effect. I'd also like to thank all of the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. Now on to the Trail Effect with Don Packer. Day on Trail Effect, I have Dawn Packard. Dawn is the owner of Blue Sky Trails LLC, but before that, she was she's been operating in the in the trail building space for a long time. She's also the 2019 Lifetime Achievement Award winner from the Professional Trail Builders Association. And she's the first woman president of the Professional Trail Builders Association and the current sitting president of the Professional Trail Builders Association. How's it going today, Dawn?
0: It's going pretty good, Josh. Good morning.
1: Yeah, it is a good morning. It's a Friday. That means we're rolling into the weekend.
0: And from what I can tell,
1: it's from what we talked about before we hit record, you're sitting in an area that has a lot of snow.
0: Yeah, up here in Bismarck, North Dakota, watching a little more snow come down on top of our already two feet in uh, early December here, 23 or 22.
1: Yeah, it seems like everything we're working on probably has 23 in front of it. So 23 is coming in hot.
0: Yep. Yep. Already looking at lots of projects for next year and got a lot of that on my desk. So,
1: yeah, well, let's, let's get into your backstory with trail building. Cause from what I gather via Aaron Kay of the executive director of the Trail Builders Professional Trail Builders Association, you've got a pretty extensive backstory and a wealth of knowledge here. So let's kind of get into how you got into trail building or how it became your passion and then your career.
0: Well, you know, late 80s, early 90s, I was uh, an undergrad at University of Colorado at Boulder, and just kind of floating around. You know, I had discovered climbing, which was great. It wasn't doing wonders for my grades, but and I was just kind of floundering, and, you know, changed my major a bunch of times, and this wasn't, it's was kind of at a point where I wasn't sure where I was going, whether I should even be in school, and I just sort of randomly went into the internship office at, at, the, at the campus. And back in the day, they had this huge binder, like huge, it was like you know eight inches thick. It was like a Manhattan phone book. And just started flipping through it and seeing, oh, well, what could I do over a summer that might give me an idea of where I'm going here? And so there were two internships, and both were with the city of Boulder. One was with their adventure program, which would have been essentially leading to be a climbing guide. And the other was a ranger internship. With the city of boulder mountain parks which is the Flatirons and flagstaff mountain kind of the, the mountain backdrop of boulder down to eldorado canyon state park and a fair ways north and, and west but so i applied for both of them and honestly i think i was kind of hoping i'd get the adventure you know the, the guiding thing and i didn't but I, I did get the ranger internship didn't really know what to expect but uh ended up working full-time there you know all summer for i think 500 bucks and a pair of fire boots uh so it was a great summer one of the best summers in my life I learned a ton we had some wildland fires we you know we had all kinds of you know backcountry medical events going on just it was it was a really busy summer and I loved it and so kind of straightened myself out in school you know I decided yep I want to be a ranger here and do that I need a bachelor's degree and so I got back on track with my grades and my classes and you know went back as a seasonal backcountry ranger for two summers I believe two or three summers after that and uh, with mountain parks and got involved pretty heavily with the climbing management in the Flatirons so that was uh, that was a time where sport climbing was on the rise and you know, I think we already had about a thousand routes, mostly traditional slab climbs in the Flatirons. You know, prior to the sport climbing era, but uh, people were coming in and bolting. You know, mo- mostly kind of the sheer north and south facing sides of the big slabby crags in the in the Flatirons. And it's a it's a fragile ecosystem up there. You know, it's talus with a really really thin layer of organic where where you can find any organic. And once that stuff gets disturbed, it's really It's really hard to put things back right. So we we just had this onslaught of illegal bolting, people scrambling all over the backcountry, you know, getting to these climbs that were being developed and and that that were bolted, and it was a big problem. So the park, you know, I'm I'm still a seasonal at this point, you know, but the park banned bolting. And uh, that was a huge controversy in the boulder climbing community. So, you know, there were still illegal bolting projects going on and I was the person that was more or less you know hunting them down in the backcountry and taking their drills and you know <laughs> writing big big tickets and, and sending people to court, you know. So that's kind of that's kind of how that started. And you know, it was kind of an impasse between you know City of Boulder and the climbing community and, and an effort was made to Kind of heal the rift, so the access fund came to an agreement with with mountain parks, and they sent a guy named Jim Angel, uh, who was a trail designer and trail builder at that time, and uh, pretty much assigned me to work with them a good part of the summer on Dinosaur Mountain in the Flatirons, uh, just north of Bear Canyon. So, and and chartered to develop some sustainable climbing access to the base of a lot a lot of these routes. So. That's what I did. So I really didn't know who this guy was and uh, quite what I was going to, you know, <laughs> end up doing, you know, but I learned a lot. And that's what I did for that whole summer. We just got up and designed and just did all kinds of stuff back in the backcountry. And, and I learned a lot about rock work and just general, you know, principles of trail design from Jim. The other part of that equation that, you know, my time with was, was mountain parks was actually as an intern, uh, we had to do one project that benefited the park. And, you know, a lot of people would do a brochure or an interpretive program or whatever, but I, I realized that uh, there, were no, there was no system trail to the base of the third flat iron, which is one of the most popular multi-pitch climbs in North America. So my project was, I designed the system trail to the base of the third. And then the June, what's called the junior ranger, which is City Boulder's version of trail crew at the time, which they still have the program, but it's high school kids and they build trail all summer. So they, they went and did that. So that was kind of, that's kind of where I got, yeah, that's kind of where I got my start there.
1: So let's back up a little bit before we go a little bit deeper on Jimmy Angel and dive into what you learned about designing that first trail you did to get to the base of the East Face. On Flatiron? Because that was your, I mean, as you just indicated, that was your first trail.
0: That was my first trail. And that was with a guy named Dick Lyman. And he was the chief ranger at at, uh, Boulder Mountain Parks for a long time. And he had come up through the ranks leading junior ranger crews before becoming a ranger. So Dick and I went out and we, you know, at the time we kind of for so the most part patched it together via existing social trails of which you can imagine at the base of the Flatirons, there's quite a few. So, and, you know, I think at the time we were kind of formalizing a lot of social trails and there was some new stuff, but there was a lot of rock build and, and stuff like that going on. And the, the mountain parks was kind of like the poor country cousin of the, of the city of Boulder. So there was open space, which was funded directly with sales tax money. And then he had Mountain Parks, which was a division of uh, Parks and Rec and kind of subsisted off of the crumbs of the general Parks and Rec budget. And so it was very much a culture of, you know, come up with some good ideas. We don't have much money, but if you can figure out a way to get it done, we've, we've got your back. You know, so I got donations. I got, we organized a bunch of volunteer days. I got food and all kinds of stuff donated for the volunteers. and. Then some of the junior ranger crews also, you know, put a lot of time into it, but it was a great environment to work in that scarcity, you know, of money did lead to a kind of almost an entrepreneurial culture within the organization for those who are willing to, to be creative.
1: Yeah, I suppose that is, that's totally true. And having to, you know, I guess maybe, maybe struggle is the right word or wrong word. I don't, I don't know, but having to like creatively work your way through solving the issues, right? And, and the learning lessons you get from that has to, had to have been huge in terms of like what you've learned, you know, outside of the actual labor of trail building.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And just that whole experience, you know, I went on to become permanent ranger with city Boulder open space and, you know, Boulder is kind of like a Petri dish, you know, for natural resource management, it, that, that limited amount of acreage and Natural land is subject to some of the most intense user pressure that you can find in the country. You know, it's so close to Denver Boulder Metro. It's hemmed in by development on almost all sides. And, you know, a lot of stuff that happens in that environment, it's kind of a harbinger of what's going to happen in other places over the next few years. So it was a great, it was just a great introduction from a land management perspective of how humans interact
1: with the natural world. Well, and fast forwarding back to, you know, working with Jim Angel, Tony, the infamous Tony Boone often uses a quote that he got from Jim Angel, which is, people don't need trails, the land does. And maybe you could expand on that a little bit from your perspective.
0: Yeah, I mean, coming into the trail building world from a resource management perspective I, you know I couldn't agree more so you know working in Boulder and then you know I went on to work at the Colorado 14ers initiative designing uh, sustainable summit routes there and overseeing multiple crews doing that work as well as restoration work but you know I, I guess I just saw a pattern of land use that I guess in, in my head I, I I tend to call extractive recreation you know like what's in it for me, you know, my workout, my experience, sort of a, the older I get, this seems to be more of the approach, you know, I I got the Strava, got the Strava out of it. I got, I bagged this peak, you know, I've got my t-shirt with all 54 peaks on, you know, 14,000 foot peaks on it. And I check each one off with a Sharpie, you know, as I, as I bag it and, you know, that inexorable pressure on the land and less of a regard for the intrinsic value of the ecosystem itself. It seems to be kind of the way things go. And so, yeah, I, I certainly approach trail building in the same way. Like, it, do we want pe- people to enjoy our, our public lands? Of course we do. You know, we need voters to understand the value of these lands and we want them to support, you know, funding and just the, the continued existence of them. But at the same time, we have to do the least possible harm. To the land, to wildlife, to the ecosystem in general, while we provide a quality user experience. So that's, that's the angle I've always been coming from.
1: You know, the one word I didn't think would come up during this particular conversation is Strava. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely did not yep. see that one coming. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, there's just, there's a lot of that picking off of things, you know, whether it's, you're bagging a peak or, you know, even sometimes you see it, like, even in, like, what we consider, like, low impact user communities, like, like birding, you know, you got your life list, you got this. And it, it seems like a lot of that goes on outside of an appreciation of the intrinsic value of the land itself and and the creatures that that live on it, you know, not always, but it, it's there and over you know, a lifetime of playing and working in the woods. I think I've seen that type of thing on the increase.
1: Yeah. And then I think you said extractive uh, recreation. Is that how you termed it?
0: Yeah. Yes.
1: Which is interesting because, you know, as I mean, I think a lot of people like myself have came to the conclusion that most of, not all of, but a lot of the success stories that are around trail communities and what we'll call ecotourism has spawned from another economy known as the extractive economy, you know, which, which could be either be, you know, mining or even logging in that. And so you see like all these success stories have a pretty common theme, which is that one economy or that one industry, you know, just dried up and then moved out. And then that community is left looking for their next thing. Right. And so it's an sure. interesting parallel sure. that you drew with that. You know, because I, I and I agree that it is a lot of it is kind of extractive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're not here. Well, in my opinion, we're not here to build trails gratuitously, you know, not to build trail just for the sake of slamming new trail in everywhere we possibly can. You know, when I was at uh, Headwaters Trails Alliance up in Grand County, Colorado, there was an effort to resurrect what what actually had been an old wagon road up to up to the Continental Divide. It would have hooked into the Continental Divide Trail. So in an old old chunk of it was Corduroy and it was through a wetland. So there were some locals and they wanted to to get this this project in. There were some huts up there and I think there was somewhat of a for profit motive to increase visitation to some of the huts and stuff. So yeah, you know, we went out, met with the Forest Service, we mapped it, you know, there was an argument to be made that this was an historic route and it you know could in some respects, circumvent the NEPA analysis because it had been a a mapped wagon road. But, you know, there's a reason it was a corduroy road is because it it went through like a really fragile, you know, subalpine fan type wetland, you know. And I spoke with my board and told them my concerns and the fact that there was quite a few ways to get to that section of the CDT. And so we came out against it. And there, there was a bit of a furor, you know, in the community that we had done that which was, it was my analysis of it. And then I took it to my board and my board supported me, you know, but again, we don't need trails everywhere, you know, just for the sake of trails, you know, we as professional trail builders and trails professionals, we have a responsibility to make sure that we're using our expertise and our knowledge and our background to make sure trails are in the right places and, and, you know, designed and built properly. Not just, not just slammed into
1: the woods. You just brought up the Headwaters Trail Alliance, and that is actually the next thing I had on my list of something to go into at, you know, that I've pulled from your bio here, and and maybe talk about you know how you got recruited into that, and and some of the stuff you did do with the Headwaters Trail Alliance. I, by the way, I do agree with your last statement in terms of like not sticking trails everywhere and being, especially if there's another, if there's other answers to the solution, right?
0: Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, HTA. So I was executive director up there for I think it was five and a half years. Um, I was recruited from Colorado 14 years Initiative, where I'd been uh, field programs coordinator after leaving the city of Boulder. And uh, CFI was great, but uh, I tell you, they do, they will work you like a rented mule for sure. <laughs> like they get their money's worth out of people. And it's hard work and you're, you're away from home a lot. And I was looking for just, after years of being like on call and working weekends and all this kind of thing as a ranger and then just running all over the state at CFI, I was looking for a little more of a stable schedule and staying put and really focusing on one area again. And I went up to up to Grand County and built a house in Hot Sulfur Springs and you know, became a part of HTA and I had a great board, it's a great community. I still miss it. So, we were focusing a lot on actually connecting the communities uh, of of Grand County with uh, non-motorized multi-use trail, uh, most of which gets also gets groomed in the winter for for skiing and stuff. So, a big feature of that at the time, which, you know, you ride through it now and it's just a, you know, four-second blip on your ride, but it's a box culvert that goes under US Highway 40 up by Snow Mountain Ranch, YMCA. So, wouldn't you... When you build a box culvert under, you know, a 200 foot box culvert under a federal highway, there is a mountain of paperwork and funding. And just it was so we were working closely with Grand County and their planning director was an engineer by trade, thank God. Uh, So, you know, we got it done, but it it, it consumed a lot of my time while I was at HTA for sure um, on that section of what's called the Fraser to Granby Trail. And then we set our sights on starting to develop. The connection from the town of Granby up to the town of Grand Lake, which is the western gateway town to Rocky Mountain National Park.
1: It's almost like you read my script because I, I didn't even email you a whole lot on this. <laughs> but this and what I'm going to bring up next is almost the opposite of what you brought up early on with uh, the HTA, which is you began an advocacy battle for moving the East Shore Trail in Rocky Mountain National Park out of wilderness designation basically to get it enabled so mountain bikers could get allowed onto that trail. I assume that's, that's what you, what the goal was here. Is that, could you expand on that?
0: Yep. Yeah. So that's, so we, we had pretty limited choices getting to Granby from Granby to Grand Lake. You know, the highway, us highway 34 corridor is really tight and the right of way, you know, you've got steep, Cliffy back slope on one side, and it drops off to the lakes and a lot of places on the other side. There's just there was just no safe way to get people through that right away, all the way up to Grand Lake, and do it in a a safe and and quality manner. We started looking at other options, and one section of the option on the the other side of the lakes, you know, was this East Shore Trail. So it was in the park, which the, the park is de facto wilderness. Although the Forest Service and the Park Service manage wilderness quite differently in some respects, that's that's another story. But this little strip by the edge of the lake was we needed it, and it really didn't have any inherent wilderness qualities. There's extensive power boating on the lake. People would actually like tie their power boats up to trees along just the very edge of the East Shore Trail. You know, tying off party. You know, cruise around their jet skis. You know it. Their tunes are pumping, you know, you're on the East Shore Trail, and you're basically um, on the lake where there's a lot of just powerboat traffic, you know. So that was the strip that we wanted to take out of wilderness. So seems a little paradoxical, and I'll be honest, I like there's a little part of me that's not, still not entirely comfortable with that with respect to the precedent, but it was, it was pragmatic, and I guess that's what it kind of comes down to, that it wasn't going to affect any of the, the true wilderness quality user experience or wildlife migration patterns, any of that in the park. It's already subjected to all this motorboat traffic and, and public use, powered public use right there on the edge of the lake. So we, we made a decision to, to go after that. And our county commissioners were very helpful, the late uh, Nan Stewart in particular. and. Uh, we got it done. It took a long time, but we got it done. And that trail is, is a reality now as, as a mountain bike trail. So the connector is not like the, the, that section of trail is not complete with respect to like non-motorized multi-use all the way through yet, but that was the key impediment there.
1: Yeah. And then staying on the, on the HTA theme, that was also where you got introduced to mechanized building and the Suico four eighty. Yes. Let's go into that. <laughs> yeah. Th- in fact, I don't mate, and I could cut this out or I could not. As I'm reading this bio, yeah, the words uh god awful swath of destruction pop out of me. <laughs>
0: well in that most I just it was just sent it. to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think that. Yeah. Well, you know, you climb on a dozer, especially if you've been a trail builder doing like fine handwork and rock work for years, you know, and uh, you look behind, you know, you give it a go and you look behind you and you just go, oh my God, what did I just do? You know, So, I can't speak for others, but I know that I learned to become a good operator by fixing my own mistakes, being patient and just going over it, going over it as many times as it took. So. Yeah, we were, uh, I'd had some, ex- I'd had some opportunities like Tony Boone was up at one of the Colorado tra- state trail conferences in winter park when I worked for the 14ers and he had his machines up there. So I got a chance to kind of check it all out and jump on those at the time. And then, uh, Woody Keene, a former, one of the former presidents of, uh, PTBA had what he called at the time, a trail guru gathering out, uh, out near Asheville for a week where he just kind of. Gathered a bunch of us youngins at, back at, at that time, and uh, invited us all out. And he had a whole stable of equipment out there, and we kind of got to pick our machines and our group, and 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 do mechanized for a week. So I bonded with the SWACO for sure. Uh, Rich Edwards was my instructor that week. Did a great job. Rich Edwards from Imba, and I just kind of fell in love with the dozer. So. HCA, we're, we're building a section through Granby Ranch on private land. And I advocated to my board, I think this is the way to go. You know, uh, we need to get this done sometime in our lifetimes. And, you know, hand building is, it's slow, you know. And so we rented we rented a dozer from from Sutter and had it shipped out. And I jumped on it. And that's where I really learned that summer was just going over it many times as it took to get it right and I you know I I'd been on tractors and bobcats a lot and that kind of thing you know growing up but it is it's different a dozer in the woods and so when it came time I had started Blue Sky Trails under one wing while I was at HTA I had kind of poached some of my best crew from the 14ers and so I had, had like some small projects going on the side in the summers so You know, I brought a couple of those folks over to help out at HTA that summer, and when it came time to ship that thing back, I went, "Yeah, I don't really want to give it back." So uh, I called John Mueller uh, at Sutter, and I said, "What do you think about selling this to me?" And he said, "Yeah," and he gave me a very good term on a loan. I I actually had to call my mom (laughs) and say, "Mom, can you help me out? You know, I'm buying a dozer." What? You know, that does her. So bless her heart. Yeah. She gave me, she, I was working for a nonprofit. I think I was making like $31,000 a year. You know, I didn't have a lot of spare cash laying around. So that's how it happened. So then I, yeah, uh, started plugging that into, well, that was, that was 06. And so 07 was the year that I I left HTA in the spring and went full time with, with Blue Sky field season of 07.
1: I bring up the the sutter thing because a, not every show but a, b- a lot of shows I'll bring up, you know, ask a ask a guest about a famous failure. And this one I think, you know, kind of presented itself to me to ask you about and I think it's <laughs> and I I do that strategically to to illustrate that we often learn the most when situations like that arise. And I think it's important that people yeah. understand that not everything is perfect and we do have to learn and adjust and and keep moving forward. So I appreciate that story.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, you know, when you're, when you're training people on mechanized equipment, you know, and you have some people that have experience with equipment, but not trails. And then you have people with experience on trails, but not equipment, you know, and I do think it's easier for the, for the newbies that haven't been on equipment, but have in their mind's eye what, what a finished trail should look like. You know, I would rather, I'd rather teach that person than someone that's had hours on equipment, but not in a trails context. Not to say that those people can't be successful, but I, I do find better success with people with past trail building experience, getting on getting on the, the big steel there.
1: Yeah, and I, I fell into the latter of those where I had experience on trails and not really an equipment experience when I got trained on how to use the infamous Ditch Witch by Mike Ryder. And, and while I've not, done a ton of mechanized trail building. I really do appreciate the knowledge that he shared and has, and even continues to share with volunteers and professionals around the country.
0: No, oh, for sure. Yeah. Mike is great. He was actually at that, uh, trail guru gathering as well that, that Woody King put together back. Gosh, that would have been 05, 06, somewhere in there.
1: The listeners will, will have known this by the time this interview comes out, but prior to this interview coming out, will be an interview with Rich Edwards. So and that's uh that's one that's gonna be coming out in, in mid-December. And Rich is another person that that I've been fortunate to spend time in the woods with and really value his his knowledge. Oh
0: yeah, knows his stuff through and through for sure. And a great guy too.
1: Yeah. Well, let's move on to Blue Sky Trails. You know, as as part of Blue Sky Trails, you you'd hinted at, you know, starting that while you're still at the HTA. And along with that, you became a member of the PTBA. Let's let's kind of get into Blue Sky Trails and what that meant, and starting that, and then after we will then roll into some PTBA specific stuff.
0: Yeah, so I started. Let's see, it would have been like fall of 03. and you know, I was I still was very like wilderness building oriented for sure, and I was just kind of you know going through the federal solicitations. I wonder what's out there. You know, I had horses and. We'd done a lot of packing with horses and mules at, at the 14ers at CFI. I was like, yeah, I wilderness work, and I can use my horses and, and support the crew. And so uh, I found one. I found one not too far from Grand County up at Camp Lakes Trail that's uh, over by the Laramie River over near Cameron Pass. And so I bid it, and I, I really didn't think I was going to get it. So this would have been a, you know, season 04 project that I'm bidding in 03, and I thought, well, you know, I'm sure I'm not going to get this, but maybe the Forest Service guy will, you know, tell me how to refine my r- response to the solicitation, and I'll get some knowledge, and I'll be able to succeed, you know, the next time around. To my utter shock, I, I, got, I got the project, and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what do I do now? Cool. So, actually... Is a thing, you know, and I had done some some smaller stuff, kind of on the side, private, you know, before that, but nothing nothing major. And like it was like a full crew, full season gig, you know, for my crew. So, yeah, we went to the Camp Lake Trail in the Raywa Wilderness, and I poached my good my my favorite uh, crew members from CFI. (laughs) Sorry about that CFI, but uh, they were great, and I just really wanted them to be on the project. So, yeah, up we went, and had, you know, full wilderness base camp with solar powered bear fence and hired a packer and then also used my horses and it was a great season. We got a lot done and we built, gosh, about 200 feet of punch in over a wetland just straight from logs that we we felled ourselves and debarked and adzed and you know, I, I did pack in the, the deck, decking boards, but yeah, you know, we did it all with cross cut saw and axes and ads and it was it was a lot of work. Plus a lot of just tread work.
1: That's legit trail building there. And you have to, I mean, it's wilderness. So you mechanized equipment. Yeah. Isn't the thing.
0: Yep. No, no, no chainsaws, no power drills. We're using bit and brace, you know, for all our fastening, you know, for anything that needed. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was a project for sure. When we were up there, as soon as it melted out and we were packing out in the first snowfall in September, you know, in snow.
1: Well, and then fast forward to uh, 2008, you know, again, pulling this from your bio, as it says, the economy hit the skids, you know, yeah. and, and, uh, and, and things were changing. And with that, you know, meant that you were going to, you were picking up work in, in North Dakota. Do you want to explain the move to North Dakota, the permanent move? Because initially I think it looks like you were just um, starting to get work there, but then you decided to make that your permanent home. Which you're obviously still at today, because that's how we're recording this.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, trying to remember who called me. Somebody from Imba called me. Said, you know, there's this project up in North Dakota. We don't have the bandwidth for it. Would you be interested? You know. So, I mean, I'm I'm sitting here and I have got I got loan on my dozer. I have a loan on my pickup. I bought a big trail. You know, like I I had some debt. You know, and. I'm not really a debt person. Like I, I like to pay things off, you know? And so I was I was like, well, shoot, yeah. I mean, give this a go, why not? So I went out and I looked at it and I bid it and I, I got the project. A really, really pretty place called Indian Hills Resort, which is, it's a private inholding holding on a Native American reservation and also has like a state recreational area within. It's, it's kind of a patchwork. But at that time, they had these Lewis and Clark Centennial funds that they still had some left, and they had acquired funding for this project. So I went up. It's right on the shores of Lake Sacagawea, with all these clay buttes and really pretty overlooks over the lake. And so yeah, I came up there, and spring of yeah spring of '07, and started building. And yeah, as that year went on, you know, the economy started crashing, and so up in the mountains of Colorado, right, everything's you know almost everything is you know tourism second homes you know all of the huge construction industry there was a bunch of big developments starting in the, in the county and it all just went it just crashed you know people were I had friends losing their homes to foreclosure their businesses you know it was it was grim you know and you know also when that happens the tax base for you know doing things on public lands also shrinks And and the will to fund projects that aren't just bare necessities, you know, for for people, you know, you got to keep the lights on and the the water, the water taps flowing and the the toilets flushing. You're not necessarily as municipalities or the county going to be in a situation like that going for amenities, you know, so it it was pretty, it was pretty rough in the mountains, um, depending on all that recreational income and, and second home income. So the same time, North Dakota was just hitting the oil boom. Like it was expanding exponentially. And I mean, I could tell you some stories about working in Western North Dakota at the peak of the boom that would curl your hair, you know, um, but they just, they had tax money to spare. Just, it was coming out of their ears, you know? So I would, I would no sooner finish a project and they'd be just, Sometimes it was out the bid, sometimes they would just ask me, "Can you do this? You know, we want to get this done and it be under a certain amount, you know, the bid limit or whatever, you know, that." So, I just kept saying, "Yeah, you bet." So, there was a guy just retired as deputy director for North Dakota Parks and Recreation. His name's Jesse Hansen, and he was he spearheaded a, a basically an initiative for human-powered recreation in the state park system in North Dakota. So, he was just he, uh, he under, understood sustainable trail building. He understood sustainable design. He's one of the few people that's you know a kind of a planner type that I've ever worked with who would just really get out there and hike and go out flagging. and you know instead of sitting in a computer and handing you a, a sheet with some lines on it, you know like uh, just a great guy and a real champion of, of trails up here. Unfortunately, he retired a few a few years ago, but uh, just a, one of the just probably top three people in my career that I've had the good fortune to, to work with. So, yeah, I've ended up designing and building some some design build, some build, just depending on the project, but trail systems and every state park up here, except for, I think, three of them. And then a bunch of like state rec areas and, and you name it. Some of it was OHV and some of the state rec areas. Um, you know, mountain bike trail, horse trail, handicapped accessible bridges, boardwalks, kiosks, etc. So, and you know, North Dakota. You know, people think you know Fargo, which gets people bristly up here because most of Fargo was actually filmed in Minnesota. First thing any North Dakotan's going to tell you, but uh, it's a big state with a lot of variation. So we have badlands, we have Pembina Gorge up in the northeast corner of the state, we have tons of river valleys. You've got your Prairie as well, but it's it's a big state with a lot of variation in terrain. So it's been challenging. I would actually, you know, I worked on the 14ers and I'd put the Badlands right up there with the 14ers in terms of extremely challenging environment to build in, hands down. Very difficult. Yeah, North Dakota has been very good to me. No complaint.
1: In North Dakota is a state that honestly hasn't really been on my radar in terms of trails and mountain biking specifically, you know, but it yeah. now it is, it's not, it's not something that has even came up in the podcast or even been mentioned to me about, you know, a place I should explore, you know, but it sounds like they're really progressive in terms of allowing mountain biking and other forms of use in their state parks. And that's pretty awesome.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they really are. And it, you know, before Jesse Hansen, you know, kind of started this push, it was pretty much, you know, campgrounds, boat ramps most of their trails were like mowed, you know, or maybe, you know, or or, or like just kind of your typical, like class five, you know, compacted through, you know, ring around the campground kind of deal. So he, I mean, he pushed hundreds of miles of trail through up here. Right now the status of that here is a little bit of disarray. The, uh, The director of parks here in the state is a cabinet level position. And so there's been, I think, in the last five years, there's been three new directors. It's been, it's been tough on the staff. You know, every time you get a new director, you get a whole different set of priorities. And so I don't know that they've really settled yet on where they're going, you know, with trails. And I don't know that they've fully embraced or they've lost a lot of skilled staff, um, you know, career staff during all these different transitions. They'll settle in at some point, but what's on the ground is on the ground. So they have that for now. And there's a little bit of hiatus uh, in building for sure. Kind of have to see where they're going with that.
1: With that at Blue Sky, is there an area, it sounds like you build for everything, but is there an area that you focus on in terms of user group for trails? Or is there something you prefer to focus on? Is there something that really you know captures your attention when a, when a specific use or maybe project co- goes out to bid that you'd like to work on?
0: Yeah. I mean, given the equipment that I have and just kind of the background, especially with mechanized, you know, I really do like getting out and building a good long cross country system, you know, like 48 inch tread over hill over Dale, you know, winding through the coolies and with some neat wooden structures, potentially, you know, punching or what have you interspersed in areas, you know, to me, like a, five, six mile, you know, cross country, blue ish, you know, is, is like perfect project. Extra points if it's a design build, you know, so I've been lucky to have some great clients up here that developed a relationship based on trust. Even if it's not necessarily officially a design build, I, I have a lot of leeway and they know what they're doing as well. So a lot of leeway with design changes and, and, and whatnot. So, but yeah, I'd say that's kind of my bread and butter.
1: Transitioning into the into the PTBA, you became a PTBA member in two thousand four. Let's expand on yep on you know your direction for becoming a PTBA member, and then let's go into the evolution of the PTBA and what you've seen since that time to where it is today.
0: Yeah, well, see, I had been to some meetings, some conferences prior to joining. Fourteeners sent me, I think, I think two two seasons in a row with a couple of my crew leads. So this is like back in the day it was in Reno at the Sands, um, like old Rat Pack, you know, like where Sinatra and all those guys used to hang out and like it was old. You mean school, where we're going you know, in 2023? Like, uh, yeah. We're going to go to the Nugget, which I think is a little more modern than, I think they tore the Sands down. <laughs> finally. Uh, they had to strip through the layers of nicotine, you know, on the walls, like the walls and the rooms were like yellow. That's nicotine it was pretty pretty og but so i had some experience it was you know there it was always in reno back at the day so i could take the train from grand county like just hop on the train and, just chill, and then be in reno and come back so it was pretty pretty easy to get there so yeah i had had this contract you know i had this contract in my pocket this world the wilderness contract that i just talked about my, my first big contract and yeah. You know, uh, yeah, they they weren't quite as exclusive back then. You know, they kinda kinda let anybody in, you know, <laughs> it seemed like at the time. There wasn't a lot of questioning. There wasn't like anywhere near the same process that exists today for membership, to be honest. So I was like, Well, what the heck? And I mean I just figured it would I would meet other trail builders, you know, I would find people to share knowledge with and you know, honestly branding, you know, for, for a company, a trail building company, you know, it certainly helps with branding to be a PTBA member. And, you know, and I knew Tony and, you know, Tony had encouraged me to join. And so, yeah, I I applied and somewhat to my surprise, I was accepted. So, you know, I was like, okay, here we are. So, and then I, yeah, that was like in March. And then like two months later I launched into my first big, big project with, with blue sky, you know, so like I said, I had done some, some small things like for Denver water, you know, 15,000 here, 20,000 there on, you know, I build a short section with some rock work kind of thing, but that was my first big project in the private sector and as a PTBA member.
1: Yeah. And you've already alluded to the fact that the PTBA has, has definitely evolved since then into what it is today, you know, on, on a couple of different levels, but you know, what is in your through your eyes, how did you see how did you see that evolution? And and then we'll get into trail building becoming a more recognizable profession just holistically from outsiders, right?
0: Right. Yeah. So like when I went to their first meeting or their first conferences, it was still W T B A Western Trail Builders Association. And it was mostly guys from it seemed to me at the time the Pacific Northwest. Um and yeah, Reno, they'd go, they you know, they party and, you know, like it was the conference at some level was like an excuse for like the boys to like meet up and party, you know, and whatever. But uh, it's, you know, over the years, definitely seen a lot, a lot more diversity at PTBA, uh, persons of color, women, uh, you name it, it just, it's just gotten bigger and. A lot more diversity, people from all different parts of the country, and now we're, we have a lot of members from different parts of the world. Um, and you know, the, the standards, and, and this is a no poke at the like some of these old guys are legends. You know, some of the stuff they did, I look at it and go, man, I've never done anything that, that crazy and huge. You know, like in the Sierras, some of these guys did some really legendary things. But you know. it it has grown to encompass a wider range of trail related skills and expertise, you know, geographically. Our membership has expanded hugely. Yeah. I mean, I look out, you know, I was looking at the, the crowd in Bentonville and just all these people, you know, hundreds of people just stoked on being a part of this community, you know, and I just was, I was just kind of looking at it, you know, and I was up in the balcony just watching what we had, like Arkansas, you know. We had a, you know, had music, live music, and I kind of went up into the balcony. I was just looking down and looking down, going, "This is our tribe, you know. These are our people. Look at us all, you know. It's a, it's a long ways from it, from early 2000s, you know, late 90s, where it's just a handful of people in a conference room, you know. It's a whole different world now."
1: Yeah. And that perfectly, again, it's almost like, you know, my script here. (laughs) It dovetails right into the next uh, topic that I was going to bring up, which is the topic that actually brought us here together today, which is women in trail building. You know, that's a topic that Aaron K brought up to me on wanting to do a series, which is why we're recording this on women in trail building. But yeah, let's, let's talk about, you know, you know, your thoughts on maybe recruiting more women into trail building planning. And I say trail building as in, also including planning design, advocacy and all the things, because it's not just physically getting out in the in the in building trails, it's it's everything. And then what kind of what kind of barriers you see and what kind of opportunities you see with women in trail building. And then we'll go back to Bentonville.
0: Okay. Yeah, you know, I don't know that I ever really kind of made my way through the rangering and trail building world as like, I'm a woman, I'm swimming upstream here. I was I was very fortunate at City of Boulder, like In our ranger staff was pretty much straight down the middle, men, women. Dick Lyman, the chief ranger that hired me, I think he he hired the first female rangers in Colorado, who then in turn hired hired me. And then, you know, when I got into trail building in a more formal sense, which would have been a Colorado 14ers initiative, again, we took care to pick our crews as, as balanced as possible. You know, most of our crews were pretty well split down the middle, you know, men and women. So I was a little surprised, honestly, when I got into like sort of the larger trail building world to find it. So male dominated, you know, so, you know, it got the usual stuff to deal with, you know, it was, it's a man's world here. You know, it, it, whatever, you know, I walk into a heavy equipment shop to, to get a part or something and it, I have to go through the little, thing where they realize oh yeah she actually knows what she's talking about like she runs this stuff and you know now i have a like certainly here in bismarck i have my network of suppliers everybody knows me i don't have to deal with that every single time i go in you know to deal with something but you know it's the, it's the usual challenges you know i i would say for me the biggest challenge was has been once i had my son so you know i have i have one one kid, he's 11. I had him when I was, it just turned 42, you know, and it's hard to run crews when you have a young kid, you know, and I can't speak for other people's families, but certainly, especially when he was a younger, younger guy, you know, he needed his, he needed his mom more than he needed his dad, you know, and my husband has been incredibly supportive, you know, and that's no shot on him at all. He's always stepped up when I've had to be gone and, you know, I, I guess I always feel like I'm robbing Peter to pay Paul. You know, if, I, if I'm paying enough attention for family, then I'm robbing from, you know, the, the crew needs me. And if I'm paying attention to what the crew needs, I feel like I'm robbing from my family, you know, a lot of the time. So very similar to what many women face in their careers, you know, not just in the trail building field. Um, I am encouraged to see more women jumping in there. Um, we had a, I have a women's caucus at Bentonville. And gosh, I'm not sure how many women came. It seemed like about 30 in the room. And there were more at the conference, you know, that were doing other concurrent sessions at the time. But that's a pretty pretty big increase from like being most of the time the only woman in the room, you know.
1: With that women's gathering that was in Bentonville, what were kind of some of the themes that came out of that or topics that were discussed that we could share on here to kind of, you know, let people that weren't at that meeting especially male people, because obviously males weren't invited to the female thing. <laughs> <laughs> but like, let's, we still
0: would have given you a beer. Like,
1: <laughs> but let, let's talk about some of those themes that, came, themes that came out of that so we can, you know, let others know that even weren't, you know, fortunate enough to be able to come to Batonville period, for that conference.
0: Sure. You know, there was a lot of just kind of like going around and introducing ourselves and getting to know each other um, and where we're from. But I, I would say like, probably the, the biggest thing we touched upon was how do we, how do we bring other women into the profession and encourage that and let women know, like, there's a place for you in trail building for sure. You know, like it is a creative, dynamic career, you know, it's a very satisfying way to make a living. You know, there's so many different things that go into it. It's not just, Root force hammering away at the dirt. You know, there's just there's so much that goes into it. You know, human psychology and, and hydrology and engineering and the, the creativity of design and, and managing people and managing you know crew managing client relationships. There's just so many different aspects that absolutely no reason women shouldn't be involved. I, I think they're put off by a lot of women are put off just by kind of the stereotype of you know big bearded dude in plaid in the woods, you know, which there's a lot of us that are big bearded dudes in plaid. There's nothing wrong with that. But it doesn't mean that as a woman, you know, or as a transgendered person, as a person of color, for that matter, you know, that you can't be part of this community. You absolutely can. And we need talented and creative people in this field. And yeah, it's how do we how do we get that message out? You know, and I I think you know, when you get into mechanized, I find that it's it even a little bit tougher, you know, because I've had female trail builders who are outstanding hand builders, you know, rock workers and, you know, kind of try and get them up on the machine. And they're just like, no, no, you know, like it's intimidating at first. It's intimidating for anybody the first time you climb up on a machine and start digging out there. And, you know, there seems to be the kind of this mental block, like, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. You know, it's like, Absolutely. You can you know, there's absolutely no reason you can't get good at this, you know? So yeah. how do we, how do we get that message out to more people, you know, the more people of color, women.
1: Staying on the topic of the, of the mechanized thing, do you find that, uh, women maybe hold a higher level of patience in terms of like really being able to, to, fi- to do fine building with me- with equipment?
0: Don't know if I would find that. I, I will say generally they're probably going to be less likely to trash the equipment, <laughs> you know, just
1: be like that includes patients too.
0: <laughs> it well, it does absolutely, absolutely. You know, I'm less likely to tear a hose off just like digging the stick into some brush, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, there's probably some element of that. On the other hand, I've worked with some men who are just the most fastidious detail-oriented trail builders you could find, you know. So uh, it's not necessarily a gender thing, but yeah, men are definitely more likely to to bash around, I think, you know, so kind
1: of... Yeah, to just know, know, go ripping tearing.
0: Factor Young guys, yeah, young guys, you know, on, on heavy equipment sometimes. You have to choose carefully. I mean, I can look at, give me a half a day, if even that, and I can tell you, if someone's going to make a decent operator or not, you know, regardless of gender. So some people have the feel for it and some people don't, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's just, yeah, it's the way we're put together.
1: Yeah. Well, so. before we wrap this thing up, do you have any kinds of words of wisdom, advice for other builders, users, advocates, closing comments, stuff that you want to impart on the world of, of trail building here on the trail Fuck podcast? Cause I think you know, you talked about legends in trail building and I'm looking at your bio going, you're a legend in trail building.
0: Well, I appreciate that. I mean, (laughs) I don't know that I see it that way. I guess my MO has always been to kind of fly low under the radar and and get shit done. I mean, that's, that's where I take my, my pleasure to be honest. You know, I, I, I'm not somebody that gets up and does a lot of grandstanding, but yeah, I mean, parting words. I mean, just we as a society every day, every week, every year we're 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 growing further from our connection to the natural world. So trail building is a profession where you can make a real difference, connecting people with the natural world and also protecting the natural world from from damage from from just getting hammered, you know. And I guess it's a little bit like, you know, the the pledge that doctors take, you know, first do no harm, you know, so there's ways that we can be creative and conscientious and and create a good user experience without doing harm. And there's a, there's a lot of ways to go about that. So my hope is that our field continues to grow and we get all kinds of different people in here and mix our knowledge together and, keep, keep building, keep making good stuff out there and protecting the natural world through our work.
1: Yeah, for, you know, for sure. And it's, I think, it, and it goes back to the quote by Jim Angel, you know, that we spoke about earlier in this uh, conversation. It is important to, you know, we do need to get people outside and, and have them get into places so they can learn to appreciate them, but then do it responsibly. So I I really appreciate that. Exactly. Before we hang up here, do you have anything as far as like kind of what people could come to expect for the the next PTBA conference in Reno, which is coming up in April? It's going to be here before we know it.
0: It's going to be a good one. So International Trail Symposium, you know, PTBA, uh, World Trails Network. So it's going to be the biggest gathering of trail builders I think that's ever happened, ever, you know, pretty much pulling everybody in that's long to come. And, and it's a great place to make connections, the vendors. I mean, yeah, we've had one, you know, one really good conference in Bentonville post-pandemic, but this is, this is going to be kind of a, a granddaddy of them all in terms of the, the whole wider trails community. So, and Reno's, Reno's great. You know, you can, you can get a shuttle up and, and hit Tahoe if you want. You can rent a car. You can drive over to the Bay Area in three and a half hours. So you can, like, you can make a little well, vacation out of it, too, if you want. But I would encourage people to come and check it out, especially people that might be considering, I don't know, should I should I, join, I have this company? Should I join PTVA? Well, come take a look at, at what we're about. And there's also some really great sessions and workshops being planned. I know Cam Lockwood is doing two of the mechanized trail building. I know Mike Ryder is doing two sessions. Uh, probably shouldn't have started listing them because I'm going to leave people out, but we've just got some really quality people putting on workshops and educational sessions at the conference that, you know, be lucky to, I think I'm going to take Mike Shield's soil dynamics class, you know, there's always something to learn. And there's, we have members with such wealth of knowledge it's such a deep knowledge of a lot of subjects, show up and come check it out.
1: Well, and from what I can tell, Reno as a community is really starting to, I don't know if the word blow up is the right word, but blow up in terms of getting more trail projects going in that in that region. And then obviously, as you pointed out, there's a wealth of trail communities that aren't too far from Reno, such as the Tahoe area. And even like, like one of my, and I think it'll be too early this time of the year, but one of my really short bucket list places to go is, is Downeyville in the Sierra, Los Sierra, you know, there in Northern California. And that's not very far from Reno as well.
0: I know. I listened to your, your pod about that. Um, who was that?
1: That was Kurt Gensheimer, the Trail Whisperer.
0: Okay. The Trail Whisperer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I listened to that uh, when I was up on the North Country working working this fall. and I, 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 Now I, I have a bone in my teeth. I want to go check out some of that Lost Sierra network. For sure, it probably will be a bit early for that, but you never know.
1: Yeah, and it's it, and it's you know talking about Kurt, like it's interesting what he's doing, which is you know uncovering you know old old gold mine routes, right? Yep. I mean that yep. it, that's super interesting in itself.
0: Yeah, and it's a way of you know essentially you know I, I guess it goes back to that winter that, that Winter Park CDT thing. You know, there's an argument to be made that. It's an existing route, so you don't have to jump through all the hoops of NEPA if you're just kind of brushing it out, you know. So whether the Forest Service sees it that way or, or not is, uh, I guess, their call. But there's, there's definitely historic routes out there waiting yeah. to be discovered.
1: And, and that that whole that Sierra Buttes uh, Trail Stewardship, the way that they're doing this connected communities initiative, again, it's a it's a region that was you know that is kind of economically depressed and bringing back economy through ecotourism and trails and and they i mean they have all sorts of trail users there from motorized to non-motorized so it's pretty incredible really
0: yeah it sounds really neat i i have some friends who just moved to reno and i'm feeling a little pang of jealousy they're just starting to explore all the trail networks and just super into it so yeah it seems like it's a burgeoning trail community for sure
1: well done! I really appreciate your time today. Um, it's it's awesome to get to know you a little bit and to have you, you know, come on here for a show and let the the masses of listeners get to know, you know, what you're about and your little corner of the world and your contribution to trail building. It's this one will be well, well received, and I really appreciate your time for that. So thank you very much.
0: Right on, Josh. I appreciate it, and I've I've been enjoying your podcast this fall. So I'm going to keep listening. I've- Got to know a lot of people in our world sort of indirectly through your pod. So thanks for, for thanks for doing that.
1: Well, thank you, Don. That, that means a lot. Cause it's, it's a labor of love. And I, and this is like doing this, doing this whole thing is really, it's opened my eyes to like all the different people out there that we can meet and share similar stories with. And I love it. So thank you so much.
0: You bet. And uh, I'll see you in Reno, I'm guessing.
1: You will see me in Reno. <laughs> all right. Thank you for listening. Links to the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you have heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you are new to the Trail Effect podcast, check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Please don't forget to leave a rating and review, as this is one of the best ways to show your support for the Trail Effect podcast. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who have signed up to be supporters of Trail Effect through Patreon. These actions mean a lot to me. With that, the value for value concept is something that has caught my attention. If you find value in the Trail Effect podcast, you now have a way to provide value for that value via Patreon for Trail Effect. This podcast has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Also, check out our new website at www.traileffectpodcast.com, with effects spelled E-A-F-F-E-C-T. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature on Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.